Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 3. Ephesians 3 is where I'd like you to direct your attention this morning. Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 14. Ephesians 3, verse 14. Uh, We're going to read a paragraph from Scripture this morning. We're very slowly working our way through this uh, letter. Uh, And this morning we're going to return again to this prayer that the Apostle Paul prayed. Um, He's concerned here about the love that the brothers and sisters in Ephesus have for one another. The gospel has brought them together under Christ and now being united with one another by him. They are called to love one another and Paul prays for their unity by praying for their love. So we're going to read from Ephesians 3, verse 14 to verse 21. You follow along in your copy of the scriptures as I read. For this reason, the word says, I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I brought with me this morning to the pulpit a very simple object, something that you are all very familiar with. And at some point in time, every person in this room has handled one of these things. Of course, a balloon. I didn't know the children's choir would be singing about red balloons this morning, or I would have brought an appropriate uh, balloon. Uh, I want you to imagine that as you leave this morning, I'm going to give every single one of you a balloon. So as you go out the door, I'm going to give you a balloon as you go. What would you do with your balloon? Think about that for a minute. Um, Maybe this is a great week for you because you're having a party and you need some decorations. So as you leave, here's a balloon. One more thing for you to hang up in your kitchen Ta-da, birthday party. Um, When I was in third grade, I I think maybe I've told you about this before, we made uh, uh, paper mache heads of famous people in history. Uh, We used balloons. Start with a balloon and you put the paper mache soaked uh, newspaper uh, over it. And when when it dries, the newspaper dries, you have a perfect round head. Um, I made Mahatma Gandhi, which is great because I didn't have to cover its head with hair. But I used an awful lot of paint to cover that beautiful bald head that he had. Uh, Maybe um, uh, someone here, (laughs) if I gave you an empty one of these, someone here would like to fill it with water. Do you have somebody in mind that would be a perfect recipient of the blessing of a water balloon? Don't do it in January. That would not be kind. Uh, maybe you could use it to, to do some sort of craft. Uh, not too long ago, uh, um, someone in our children's ministry filled balloons with flour and gave them to the children. Uh, I'm not sure what spiritual lesson they were trying to communicate with that. I'm sure it was a fine one. We have fine teachers in our children's program. But that Sunday, I was so glad my kids weren't part of that class. Um, maybe... Uh, uh, I bet most of you, if you had to, you would probably 
give this balloon to a child, right? Kids love to play with balloons. Kids can play with balloons for hours and hours and hours and be entertained by balloons for hours and hours and hours. Well, one of my favorite games when I was little to, to play with a balloon, you've, you've all done this, every person here, is to try to keep the balloon there like this without letting it hit the ground. And just maybe you count how many times can I hit the balloon without it falling to the ground. You play this game forever and ever and ever. Now, you could add a challenge to it if you want to. Play this in a room with a fan on. Makes it fun. Especially a rotating fan. That's even better. Add real challenge. J.D. Greer, who's the pastor of the Summit Church, encourages us to just for a minute think about your spiritual life as if it were a balloon. Let's imagine here that this, is, uh, this balloon here represents your life with Jesus Christ and the object is to keep your life from Jesus Christ, with Jesus Christ, your spiritual life, from bottoming out, from hitting the ground. And some of you, the way you think about your spiritual life, you think of things that you do as a Christian as, as things that you use to hit it up, to bop it up. So uh, you come to church on Sunday and you hear we sing a great song, your favorite song, so your spiritual life gets a little boost. Or um, you have a really great conversation with the foyer and poof, up it goes again. Or you hear a sermon. This is my job, right? This is what I do. I am the balloon pusher of your spiritual life. Okay, so I say, you know, give to missions and, and up you, you stay up. for. You should be, pray a little bit more. You should be nice. You should uh, be faithful. You should... Uh, 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 not be so stingy, and poof, I keep your spiritual life afloat. You ever feel like that in your spiritual life, that you're uh, bouncing along, the object is to hit, not hit the ground, and you just need a bump every now and then? You know, there's another way, though, to keep a balloon from hitting the ground, other than receiving spiritual bumps every now and then. You know what that is? Of course you do. If you fill this balloon with helium, it'll float all by itself won't hit the ground at all. Isn't that the sort of change that you want in your life? Isn't that how you want your spiritual life to be? You don't want to be uh, dependent on spiritual bumps from me or from our song leaders or from a radio host. You want there to be real change on what's inside of you. That's the sort of spiritual transformation that the Apostle Paul was concerned with in the church in Ephesus. That's that sort of lift, that sort of buoyancy. Um, I just read a passage of Scripture in the New Testament where we find here a lot of themes from the book of Ephesians uh, coming together. Several ideas and concepts that are crucial to this book come before us. But the central idea here, the subject of Paul's prayer for these brothers and sisters is that the power for real change, real transformation, is rooted in the love of God. Or, to use my balloon analogy, the love of God is like helium that it provides the lift for true spiritual transformation. Now, by saying that, by talking about the love of God being the power that is to change your life, um, I am uh, uh, drawing, uh, opening a host of issues. Love is not usually what comes to mind when most people think about change. If you're a parent here this morning, you are involved in some way in the change process. You are trying to steer your children 
from immaturity to maturity. How do you lead them along? When it comes to addressing specific behaviors, specific patterns that they have, what role does love play in that change process? Um, Last week we went to the playground. My kids and I went. And when it was time to leave, I called my children clearly and I started walking toward the car. Two of them followed me. Uh, One of them did not, and for the protection of that child's privacy, he shall remain nameless. (laughs) I told them it was time to leave. I started toward the car, and as I was going, the girls are with me. He's not. I look back, and there he is in the playground. And you know, the thought occurred to me. It's my thought process as I'm walking toward the car. You may have had this thought process before. wonder what he'll do. I got the girls in, got in myself, started the car, started to, and began to leave the parking lot. I wonder what he would do. I bet he'd come then. This is what I'm thinking. I bet he'd come then. You've seen that technique, haven't you? The children, uh, parents that have their little children in the mall and they're walking along or the, the, the stores and the kid's like, I'm not going anywhere. And, oh, fine then, I'm leaving you here. Thinking that, their child would be like, oh no, mommy's going to abandon me. That's not what the kids think. It doesn't work, does it? (laughs) Kid is not thinking, oh no, I've been abandoned. They're thinking to themselves, great, now no one is here to challenge my dominance to the world. That's what they're thinking. Right? So I'm I'm walking up to my car and I think to myself, do I really want to change his behavior by fear that I'm abandoning him? Is that really why I want him to obey me. Do I want him to uh, obey me because he's afraid that if, if he doesn't, I'm going to leave him? Or do I want him to obey me because he knows that I love him and when I issue a command, I do it because I love him and I do it because this is what's best for him? Which do I really want? <laughs> is there really any choice? I mean, do, 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 in, in contrast to the second choice, that I want him to obey me because... Uh, he knows that when I give him a command, it's, it's out of love. Compared to that, there's, there's no other alternative, right? Uh, I was, uh, this, this disconnect, this disconnect between change and love that, that we often have, when you try to parent by fear, there's a disconnect. And this disconnect between love and power, the power to change, is often why accountability groups fail. Uh, a young man is, is confronted with the need to cultivate purity in his life. So what's he going to do? I'm going to get an accountability group and we're going to get together every week and we're going to talk to each other about what we've done and our failures. So the accountability group meets on Saturday morning. Friday night, that, kid, that young man is all by himself. And he, he's, he's tempted and he's thinking to himself, what am I going to do here? And his thought is, I don't want to have to tell them tomorrow what I've done tonight, so I won't. And what's motivating that young man at that point in time? Guilt and shame. I don't want to be ashamed tomorrow to tell them what I've done, and I don't want to feel guilty in telling them that. not motivated by love. That's why accountability groups fail. The Bible says that the grace of God has appeared to us all and it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly lust. It's love that is the power to change. The default setting of the human heart is to motivate change with something negative, with a punishment, with a fear, a shame, a guilt. But that is not the chief plan that the Bible 
uh, directs us toward. And it's not the focus of Paul's prayer. The power for real change is rooted in the love of God. <laughs> Mentioning the love of God is another problem when, when we talk about it here. It, it, this is a massive amount of confusion. There is a massive amount of confusion about the love of God. I guarantee you that if you walk outside the church and you find someone who believes in God, most likely the first person you meet will be someone who believes in God. If they know anything about God at all, they know that God loves people. That's his job. That's what he does. But God's love is willowy. It's ill-defined. God loves everyone, and his love never makes any demands on anyone. And what God's love is really for is to make me feel good about myself and the choices that I make. God's love is sentimental, it's sweet, it's warm, and it's absolutely, as most people conceive of it, powerless. That's not what we find here, though, in the text. And this morning, I want to ask and answer three questions from this portion of the Word of God. Three questions that that I hope will help us see what is central to Paul's thinking when it comes to God's love. And here, here the three questions are, what is God's love? Secondly, how do we understand or grasp God's love? And third, what does God's love do in your life? What's it supposed to produce? What is God's love? How do you understand God's love? And what does God's love do in your life? Now, let's begin with that first question. What is God's love? This is a massive question. This is a huge question, and I'm not going to this morning do a systematic theology of God's love. Other people have done it. In fact, the best way I think you could grasp what the Bible says about God's love is reading a little book by D.A. Carson called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. It's just a little over 100 pages, and it uh, wonderfully unfolds the nuances and images that the Bible uses to describe God's love. What I'm thinking about when I ask this question, what is God's love, is I want to talk specifically about what this text says about God's love, and I want you to see three things here. First, God's love is foundational. God's love is foundational. It's foundational for our faith. Verse 17 says, I pray that you being rooted and established in love. These words, rooted and established, come from the world of farming and from the world of construction. You understand rooting. You, you, you know that. that. That's an agricultural word. It means that the faith of a follower of Jesus Christ is deeply planted, that is, solidly set in the love of God. Jesus was once giving a parable about four different types of soils, a a sower. It's often called the parable of the sower. He was sowing seed, and and seed fell in various types of soil, and it had different sorts of results. And one of those plants, one of those soils, um, the seed fell in it, and it grew, but Jesus said it died early because its roots weren't deep in. Because it died, it did not have the essential element of authenticity, which is fruitfulness. And it didn't have deep roots. Paul's saying, that's not true of the Ephesians, you are deeply rooted in God's love. Uh, The word established is from construction. Uh, It refers to a building that's solidly set on its foundation stone. Uh, when they have done archaeological research of, of Herod's temple in Jerusalem, they have found massive foundation stones that weigh several tons, these huge stones that were the foundation for that magnificent building that was in, existing in Jerusalem in Jesus' day. 
Paul says, your love is built uh, like uh, on the foundation of God's love, like Herod's temple that rose, rises into the air. This, the, the foundation, the soil in which our faith takes root and grows, from which it grows, is God's love. Now, this leads me to ask a very important question, uh, which Paul doesn't answer explicitly here, but I, I would like to hear him address. In fact, I can't find this question addressed specifically anywhere in Scripture. Is his love the most important thing you need to know about God? Let me say that again. Is his love the most important thing you need to know about God? If you were to speak to people for the first time about the God of the Bible, is the most important concept that you could communicate to them his love? Maybe that sounds like a silly question to you. Um, I hear preachers and I hear teachers all the time say that we talk too much about God's love and not enough about God's wrath or about God's justice or about God's holiness or about God's power. In all the sloppiness there is in the discussion about God's love, maybe it seems like His wrath gets neglected. So maybe we shouldn't talk so much about God's love because we never stop talking about God's love and start talking about other important things about God, like His holiness and His justice and His wrath. And yet, yet, the text does not say that we're rooted and established in God's power or that we're rooted and established in God's holiness or that we're rooted and established in God's justice. See, I think the problem is not that we don't that we talk about love too much, but that we do it so poorly. We never talk about God's love that leads to transformation. God loves you. And because He loves you, He's not going to allow you to remain the way you are. He's going to change you. Remember, Paul said in Romans, it is the kindness of God that leads to repentance. If you're speaking about God's love in such a way that it's not foundational and not transformative, you're not speaking about biblical love. God's love is foundational. Second, though, God's love is incomprehensible. God's love is foundational. It's God's love is incomprehensible. Verse 19 is a strange verse in many ways. Look at what it says here. Paul says, he prays that you would know this love that surpasses knowledge. Now, how is that possible? <laughs> Paul's affirming that God's love is beyond our comprehension. He says, I want you to know something that's unknowable. Uh, God's love is greater than our ability to understand. There will always be more for us to learn. There will always be more for us to explore and to understand. The Bible says that angels, celestial beings who dwell in God's presence, long to gaze into God's grace. God's love is like the universe. It's, it's vast. Think about how much of our universe we have explored. <laughs> have we been very far off of the planet? Not really. We sent a couple satellites that have gone very, very far, but only just into the early reaches of the universe. We've made a start, but there is so much more. This is the way God's love is. In this world, in this planet, with God's Word at our hand, in, our, in our hands, we make a little bit of progress in this vast subject. 
Now, this incomprehensibility of God's love is somewhat related to a third thing that this text says about God's love. God's love, third, is immeasurable. It's immeasurable. Verse 18 is one of the most beautiful verses in all the Bible. It says, I pray that you may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. It's a beautiful verse. Paul's using dimensional language here. God's love is real. It's, it's, it's solid. It's not sappy. It's not ephemeral. It's not sentimental. It's solid. It's strong. He says that God's love is wide. How wide is God's love? God's love is as wide as the world. One of the themes of the book of Ephesians is that the gospel has gone out to Jews and Gentiles. God's love is broad enough to envelop people from every country, every people group, every language group, and every continent. One of the reasons that we have joy together as we gather together on Sunday is because we know that within this 24-hour period as the world goes around, Jesus Christ will be praised in hundreds of different languages by millions of different believers in dozens of different types of building designs. God's love will be celebrated because God's love is broad. It's wide. Charles Spurgeon, listen to what he said about God's love. He, uh, commenting on this text, he says, The first object of the Christian's knowledge should be the breadth of the Savior's love. I know a certain school of Christians who have, never, who need, who have need to study this point, for they have a very, very narrow idea of the Lord's loving kindness. They cannot be brought by any means to conceive of it as being broad. To them it is no wider than a razor's edge. They concede of divine love as a very narrow stream. They have never seen it to be a mighty, flowing, abounding, and rejoicing river such as it really is. The breadth of Christ's love, dear friends, we are told in the Scriptures, is such that it extends to all ranks and races of mankind, not to the Jew only, but also to the Gentile. The love of Jesus Christ does not surround our favored island alone, but like the ocean, it washes every shore. The love of Jesus Christ has been extended to kings upon their thrones, but with equal and more frequent bounty to the slaves in their dungeons. In some respects, the love of Jesus comes to every man, for there is not a man or woman born who does not owe something to the benevolence of the love of God through the love of Jesus. Now, Spurgeon was a committed Calvinist. He believed in election without uh, doubt. But listen to what he said. Beloved, consider the breadth of special love. We are very apt to conceive the number of God's elect to be but few. Who told us that? When the Savior was asked, Lord, are there few that shall be saved? He never answered that question, but he said, strive to enter into the straight gate, as though he had said, whether there be many or not, do you strive do you strive to the utmost to enter in? I hope that the multitude of the chosen will far exceed the number of the lost. It has always seemed to me that if in all things Christ will have the preeminence, He will not suffer the powers of darkness to drag away the major part of the human race, but on the contrary, a multitude that no man can number so many as the stars in heaven for multitude, and like the sands upon the seashore innumerable, shall be the fruit of His suffering, which shall make Him see the travail of His soul and to be satisfied. It is well to have as broad an idea of the love of Christ as Scripture will permit and there I trust we shall be content to stay. God's love is broad. It's wide. It's as wide as the world. Uh, Christ's love is long. It's as long as eternity. 
Paul said in Ephesians chapter 1, God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. In love, He predestined us to be members of His family and we are His in love forever. Christ's love is as wide as the world and it's as long as forever. Christ's love is as high. It's as high as a heaven. We are built into a building, Paul says in Ephesians 2, a spiritual temple that reaches into heaven itself. And with Christ we are seated at God's right hand. Christ's love is as high as heaven. It's as wide as the world. It's as long as forever. And Christ's love is as deep as hell. God demonstrates His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, deserving of His righteous, eternal wrath, existing forever in fiery torment, Christ died for us. He rescued us from hell. He rescued us from the penalty we owe God because of our rebellion against Him. My favorite stories in in the Gospels are when Jesus calls somebody back from the dead. He, He reaches into death itself and He calls Jairus' daughter and He wakes her up. He stops a funeral outside the city of Nain, and he reaches into death itself and gives a son back to his grieving mother. He calls a man named Lazarus from, uh, who has been dead for four days, and he calls him out of the tomb. Christ reached into the depths of my sin, and he pulled me out by his own death, bearing God's wrath in my place on the cross. I wonder if someone is here this morning and you feel keenly the weight of what it means to be alienated from God. Your life has shrunk so much that the only boundaries of your life are your pain, your guilt, your shame. Perhaps you're imprisoned by the scars of the sins committed against you by someone else. Look at the deep, deep love of Jesus Christ and how far down it reaches. That He comes into the prison of your darkness with the light of His love, and He calls you to Himself. Would you turn to Him this morning? His love is as wide as the world. It's as long as forever. It's as high as heaven, and it's as deep as hell. It's what God's love is like. That's not the only question that our text answers for us this morning. There's a second question that I want to consider with you. How do you understand this love? Paul uses the word grasp. It's a word that comes from hunting. It means to catch something, uh, to lay a hold of it, or it comes from warfare, to make it your own, to conquer something and to take it in and as your own. How does this incomprehensible, immeasurable, foundational love of God enter your life in a way that's reachable, that's graspable, catchable? Two things I want you to see here. Notice, first of all, that it's a supernatural work. It's a supernatural work. Paul prays for it. Verse 18, I pray that you may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp this love of Christ. It takes supernatural power to get this, to understand this. This is one of the ways that we know that Paul is describing something that is vastly different from the normal ways that we think about the love of God. God's love is so magnificent, you need divine help to understand it in all its brilliance, which is why we are spirit people, why we are dependent upon the Spirit of God to be at work in us so that we can even understand God's love. Uh, Let me run through your mind for a minute, if, if I can do that. Human beings 
sing and sing and sing and sing about love. <laughs> you want to frustrate a, a, a radio host sometime when, when they're on the radio and the music show and they're doing favorites, you call in. Call in and you say, yeah, uh, I, want to, I want to sing a, a song and I, I wonder maybe if you know it. And the DJ will say, or I want you to play a song. Maybe, maybe you'll know it. The DJ will say, well, what's your song? What's the title of the song? Well, I don't really know it, but it's about love. Uh, what will he say? Uh, can you be a little bit more specific? Here, listen. Um, I just called to say I love you. I love you for sentimental reasons. I will always love you. I'll never fall in love again. It had to be you. Just the way you are. Love and marriage. Love don't cost a thing. Love me tender. Do you love me? Love will find a way. Nothing's going to change my love for you. Our love is here to stay. Save the dance. Last dance for me. Not written by a Baptist, although it might be the last dance. The man I love. When you love someone, you are everything. You are my destiny. You are so beautiful to me. You light up my life. You've lost that loving feeling. Ain't no mountain high enough. Always on my mind as time goes by. Uh, uh, everlasting love. Every breath you take. How sweet it is to be loved by you. And on and on and on and on we could go. Uh, without God's power, though, these are just the crayon scratches roughed out by toddlers. Grasping the love of God is supernatural work. It's that different, it's that significant than what they sing about on the top 40 song radio stations. Grasping the love of God is supernatural work, but secondly, it is also community work. It's community work. I wonder if you notice that little phrase in verse 18. It says, I pray that you may have power together with all the saints. With all the saints. If you listened to me last week and talk about the condition of your love for those who are your fellow followers of Jesus Christ, uh, maybe you decided in response to renew your efforts at building significant uh, relationships with people here at the church. That'd be marvelous. I wonder, though, if the first thing that you thought was to yourself, well, um, who here in this church, if I'm really going to do this Christian thing and I really need to have uh, relationships with people, okay, who here is like me? Did you, did you think that? Who here is like me? Who do I already enjoy? Who do I think, of all the people here, could really be my friend? Those, those are fine questions to ask, but you notice the word here, all, is extensive. In fact, in order to fully grasp God's love, you must have contact and partnership with people, different people. It takes people outside of your comfort zone to understand in all its significance the love of God. Maybe people outside of your ethnicity or your education level or your social economic status. People with different interests than you have. People with different skills. Tomorrow's Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Not sure your opinion of Martin Luther King Jr., uh, but, but what he trumpeted was something that we should celebrate. The fact that under God, Regardless of our ethnicity, uh, we are uh, made in his image and, and the, we are united to other people, especially by the gospel, as, as, those, as we come together in Christ. Uh, 
this here is uh, uh, one of the chief evidences that the gospel is at work in, in your life. Anybody can befriend someone like them, but when you pursue Christ with someone who's different than you are, then something, uh, someone you're not naturally inclined to embrace, that is evidence that the gospel is stretching you. When the gospel takes you outside of the people with whom you are most comfortable, that's evidence that the gospel is at work in your life. And you reach them, you befriend them by speaking to them about the love of God. How shocking would it be for you to think, to, to after the service, for you to find somebody in the congregation that you do not know, maybe someone who, who is different than you by a number of years on the planet. And, and if you were to go up to them and say, hey, uh, don't say hey, hello, uh, uh, I, I don't know you very well, I want to introduce myself, my name is Joel, what's yours? And, and uh, just w- would you tell me how you have seen Evidence of God's love in your life. Isn't it an amazing thing? All the saints. There's a third question, a last question that I want to address here in this passage. And we have to answer quickly. What does God's love do in your life? What does God's love do in your life? And the answer is given for us at the end of verse 19. It fills us to the measure of all the fullness of God. This is another impossible thought. How can you be filled with infinitude? It's like speaking, it's like talking about filling a Dixie cup with the fullness of the ocean. How is it possible to fill a Dixie cup with the fullness of the ocean? Now, this is one of the, the places in the Bible that gives, or in Ephesians, it gives rise to the theme that I want you to consider for the book of Ephesians. We are filled to overflowing. It says at the top of your sheet, doesn't it? We are filled to overflowing. That is, we experience so much of the love, the power, the holiness of God that it overflows our lives and refreshes others. Specifically, we see in this context here that the love of God does, is it makes, what it does in your life is it makes you love like God Himself. What does God's God's love do in someone's life? It changes you so that God's fullness is in you and you begin to love people like God loves people. The end of the love of God in a believer's life is not warmth and affirmation, but service and sacrifice. Your love for others will be broad. It will overflow the banks of your race and your class and your neighborhood. God's love will make you secure enough that you will be able to leave safe places and spread God's love abroad. God's love, your love will be broad. Your love for others will be long. It will, be per- it will persevere. Uh, you will be satisfied in God's love. If you place all of your hope and satisfaction on a friendship or on a marriage, on, in your spouse, you will crush your spouse. You'll crush your friend. But satisfied with God's love, you'll be able to love them for a long time. Your love for others will be high. You, your love will connect people to Jesus Christ. His Uh, 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 love will transcend the joy that you find anywhere else. You may see a fantastic movie or eat at a great restaurant or find an amazing sale at the store, but what will really excite you is Jesus Christ. And you will lift friends to Him above restaurants and movies and shopping. Your love for, for others will be deep. You'll walk with people through deep valleys of grief. You'll have the courage to call them to repent. You'll have the freedom 
being loved by God to face your own sin and help other people do it too. It's what God's love does in someone's life. It enables you to love other people like God loves. You'll be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. Don't be content today uh, to be part of the process of lifting people up with a well-placed hit, bouncing them up a little bit to help them make it through the week. Instead, fill them with the buoyant love of Christ. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we are grateful to you for the clarity of your word as it speaks to us. Uh, we give you thanks often for this. It is, uh, it has, uh, your word is perspicacious. It, it, it takes the right perspective in our lives and it allows us with magnifying glass to, to comb through our hearts and minds. God, again, we, we, we pray because... Uh, we are naturally inclined to despise one another, to uh, use one another, to be envious of one another, to, to compare ourselves with each other. We are not naturally incli- inclined to serve and sacrifice. God, I, I pray that you would cultivate in our church uh, a, a comfort level for Jesus Christ because our love for one another is wide and deep and long and high. Do that changing work in us. Help us by your Spirit to know supernaturally this love and and, uh, demonstrate it. Uh, Stretch us, challenge us, uh, convict and change us, and do it through these men and women that are here this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.